Last week we were in uh, Romans 1 and 2, and uh, I sadly didn't bring my notes with me from that week, but Romans 1 and 2 uh, just laid the foundation for what this book is all about. It's the most doctrinal book of the New Testament. Um, we learn that we have a duty to be holy, that we're saved, but we have a duty to be holy, that we should labor to be worthy of the name that we bear. So tonight we're going to start in Romans 3. And I'm not going to lie, I was quite intimidated when I looked at this, this chapter because it's actually, it's, it's supposed to be one of the more difficult passages in Romans. And basically, I'm so I just really wanted to sum it up for you. Uh, it's particularly directed toward objections that were being raised to the gospel by the Jews. So um, we won't spend a ton of time here, I don't think, but Paul had just asserted to the Jews that that physical circumcision was meaningless if there wasn't a circumcision of the heart. So in Romans 2, we'll just backtrack just a little bit, set the stage, 28 and 29, Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is the circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And so Jews, the, 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 the Jews at that time had a tendency to boast in the law and in circumcision. And they, they believed that they were justified because the law and the oracles of God were entrusted to them. Not even, so, not, not even being obedient to the law, but just because they considered themselves under the law that they, they thought they were justified. And Paul definitely shakes things up when he begins to preach the simple message of the gospel that is Christ crucified. So in chapter 3... <clears throat> Paul is defending the judgment of God. Uh, and this is something that's really debated in the American church, especially because we don't believe that a loving God could inflict wrath upon people. But we don't also, we don't teach the justice of God, that in his goodness he is just, and that he has to punish sin. Otherwise, he would be compromising his perfect moral character. So he has to judge sin. So here is the, the first objection that, the Jews would raise to so Paul's answering. He's anticipating the objections to his message. And he says, what advantage, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? This is verse 1. Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So they're saying, well, if circumcision is meaningless, then what's the point of me being a Jew? What good is that? And he says, well, you're, there's still a promise to those people. You're a peculiar treasure, a holy nation. And the oracles of God, it's, it's cool. And you think about the, the oracles of God and, and the law were written in their language. So it was entrusted to them. So really the Jews had the means of salvation, but they didn't have the monopoly on salvation. So they knew the way, but they, they weren't the only ones that were allowed access and were given salvation. They had the means of salvation, but not the monopoly on salvation. So in this in the scriptures, Paul is affirming God's faithfulness to Israel, but he's also affirming that God has the right to judge Israel. <clears throat> so he is love and he is just. I talked about that last week with the, the book Dare to Discipline. It says that as parents, we give our children their, their first picture of God, and they learn both sides. Good parents teach their kids both sides, his love and his justice. There's a balance. <clears throat> So we're going to keep going. Here's another objection that people raised uh, to the gospel message, and it's verse 3. I wrote verse 3 through 4 through 8. That doesn't make any sense, but <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. Verse 4, um, or 3. 
uh, for what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will, judge God the, uh, how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, and their condemnation is just. So there's two objections that are being raised here. People objected to the gospel message because the Jews didn't believe it. So they say, well, if this is true, how, why do so many not believe it and not accept it? And still to this day, there's many Jews, they don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. They don't accept that simple gospel message. They're still waiting on their Messiah, which is just really, really sad. <clears throat> so, and then, then he also says that um, we'll let God be true and every man a liar, that God's purposes will prevail even if an entire generation sets out to make him a liar. He is truth. So we should forsake all worldly wisdom, always, because God's word is truth. So that's what he's saying, that um, that's the objection that people were raising. And then he says, God can never do evil. Some people were saying that, that Paul was preaching, that the early church was preaching that um, they saying to do evil so that good may come. Like, um, it, all, it kind of reminds, I don't know if this is a very oversimplified way to look at it, but it's like when you hear somebody give their testimony, and kids a lot of times that are raised in church, they think they have to go be wild so that they can have a testimony to share. And so that's what makes me think of like, well, I'm going to go do this horrible thing and God will save me from it and then I can give him glory or whatever. It's like really twisted thought process. But it's, it's not so that God, God, does, God will still judge that sin even if it eventually brings glory to him. You know, uh, so that's what he's saying, that um, God's not unjust to inflict wrath. Nobody will be able to say they were unfairly judged. Because God can never do evil, and he doesn't allow us to do evil in order to bring about good results. So even if our intentions are good, sin is sin. He doesn't allow us to do evil to bring about good results. So he judge, uh, sin is sin, and it has to be judged. Yes. Some people say when they make a poor decision in their life or, or they actually even make a sinful decision in their life and then they get on the other side of it and everything seems to have worked out okay, that God sent me in this direction. God put me on this path. He may have put you on the path, but you made the decision to sin or not. And there, there's always a price that is paid in in some way there's a cost associated with our rebellion and so for us to say that you know god was ordering my steps it is that that is not the case there was a there was points all along the way where we could have stopped and said lord what is your desire in this moment and even if what you ask me to do is not what i want to do i'll obey you and we had the opportunity to do that. So we cannot say in the middle of our sin, he was ordering my steps. 
even in or through that. Now, he might have brought you through it, brought you out of it on the other side with great grace and reestablished you, but it was not his choice for you to sin or to live in sin. He, he won't allow us to do evil to bring about good results. So in verse 3, I want to go back to this, actually. I kind of skipped over But in verse 3, some objected to the gospel message of the Messiah because of the unbelief of the Jews. And I said God's, purpose will be, God's purposes will be performed even if an entire generation sets out to make him a liar. Feels like where we're at right now. Uh, but the unbelief and the infidelity and the stubbornness of the Israelites, it doesn't nullify the prophecies of the Messiah. So that's what Paul was saying. No matter what we, what, no matter what people want to set out to make God a liar, it's, we forsake all of that. And we say, let God be true and every man a liar. And I talked a lot about the, the Matthew Henry commentary last week, and I stole this out of there, so I don't want to take credit for it because I'm not this smart. But this is what he says. It says, let us abide by this principle, that God is true to every word which he has spoken and will let none of his oracles fall to the ground. Better to overthrow and question every man on this earth than to doubt the faithfulness of God. And it's, not, it's contrary to popular belief and contrary even to some Christian teaching that we want to preach a loving God and not a just God. And uh, we twist and manipulate the gospel and the word of God to fit our purposes a lot of times. Um, we, we pick and choose. It's like the Bible's not trail mix. Like, you can't pick the almonds and the M&Ms out and leave the peanuts, but <laughs> which is what I do. So anyway, moving on to verse 9. Yeah, true life. I sort through the trail mix. Um, verse 9. <laughs> what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the reason our society is slowly decaying and turning their hearts toward what is false and deliberately setting our hands to do evil. It's because there's no fear of God. And so I pray that we would be a people that would preach the fear of God, that would walk in the fear of God and would teach the next generation to walk in the fear of God. It's our only hope. And then verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And I think we should take a minute to appreciate the controversial nature of this statement that Paul was making to the Jews. It, this, was un, this is really unraveling a belief system that was so ingrained because they thought they were justified by the law. And Paul says what justifies or what the law, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So what exposes sin cannot justify it. 
The law just exposed our sin. The whole purpose of the law was to show we needed a Savior. We couldn't have communion with God on our own. And so it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So note that, that all the world may become guilty before God. No one will be able to say in the day of judgment that they were unfairly judged by God. So now, here's where it gets just a little happier. Verse 21. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. Jew, Gentile, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul lays it out. This is how you are justified. And actually, some argue that the the word propitiation, it's the appeasement of wrath. It's the the payment for wrath um, by sacrificial offering. And I'm just going to read this little thing to you. It says, some deny that the Bible contains this idea. This is what I'm saying that in in the American church, and the the happy way of thinking we we bring uh, we we uh, doctor up these teachings to make ourselves feel good instead of instead of the truth um, and so people it says that some deny that the Bible even contains the idea of the propitiation because they don't think a loving God would ever personally exercise wrath against his creatures but it's it's clearly implied with that word propitiation. It's the only solution to the fact of God's wrath against sin. The heart of the gospel is is that Christ bore that wrath for us. He was a substitute sacrifice. So that's 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 where we're at. Where am I here? And I want to say too, we've purposely set this up like a classroom environment. So if you have like a comment, question, if you have something to add, feel free. I don't want to be like preaching at you, but so, anyway, um, the last thing here is uh, no one can reach the standard of perfection of God. We'll never be worthy of glory, or we'll never be worthy of his glory on our own. So to be justified is to be declared right or righteous in God's sight. God cannot forgive sin without full payment for the penalty of that sin. So here's just the, the tail end of um, this chapter, chapter 3. Where, where is boasting then? Boasting, bragging, I did it myself. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Thank you, Jesus. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So he says where there is no room in the gospel for boasting. No person will ever be able to say we earn salvation. We're a good we're good people. I'm just a good person. That's un, it is not biblical. We there is no room in the gospel 
for boasting. And he's the God of the Jews and the Gentiles, praise God. He justifies us by faith. The circumcised and the uncircumcised justified by faith. Just, just to throw this out there, this is in its absolute simplest form because there's much more doctrinally uh, technical that we could get into here when he says the law is not abolished, it is established. Um, that what it, that the purpose of the law was to reveal sin. After the cross, the law still reveals sin. It will reveal sin until the day of Christ's return. And at the judgment, it produces in us an understanding of our inability to justify ourselves, the law. That's why he established it rather than abolishing it. Thank you. So just to sum up that chapter 3, all have sinned. There's a penalty for sin, and it must be paid. And it was Jesus that was set forth as a propitiation to appease the divine wrath of God. So it, uh, now, by faith in Jesus, we are made righteous, so we can be made right with God without God compromising his character. So Paul taught that the gospel of Jesus Christ was for all and that no one was justified by their deeds or by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So any, any additions, anyone want to, like Leroy, you want to add anything? Cool. Go ahead. Um, just to uh, keep going on that same point, uh, the Apostle Paul in writing Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 um, says, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous man. And in Jesus Christ, we've been made righteous. He was made sin that we can receive his righteousness. So the law is not for the righteous, okay? The law is not for us, but, but as Pastor said, it is still quite relevant today. But what is it for? He goes on after the comma. But, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for man-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And right then and there, the law is still good, to magnify and to show people their sin, to show them that they do still need a Savior. Sometimes we want to give them the ooey-gooey and chewy of the gospel, okay, and say, you know, you know, God loves you, and God has a wonderful plan for your life. You will see nowhere in the New Testament where that is ever a plan of salvation ever offered by any apostle or any evangelist, okay? They always tell you, you know, the consequence. They always tell you what, what it is. And, and as the Apostle Paul is outlining... This is the part that God is indeed just and that the law is his standard. And that, uh, and that when it says that, he, that this establishes the law, that the faith in Christ in those last few verses in Romans 3 establishes the law, is that you and of yourself and of your own flesh, as he goes on to say in later verses in, chapter, in, in Romans, that you could not have in and of yourself establish uh, uh, achieve any kind of relationship with God by the law, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, he says in Galatians 2.16. And so because 
of, of that fact of our righteousness in Christ, it establishes the fact that God does have a standard, and that standard is Jesus Christ. And the only way to receive that standard is by receiving the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. You're supposed to drop it like mic drop and then walk away and do like a, you do a hair flip. You do one of these. I'd love to, I'd pay money to see Leroy do that just once. <laughs> I do that to break the tension when I have to discipline a kid. I'm like, you need to sit down and stop talking to them. <laughs> and they laugh. I don't know if they take me seriously, but... All right, chapter 4. I love this chapter of Romans so much. That's where I wanted to spend some time tonight, but... So Paul says, verse 1 of chapter 4, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him... For righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him. Did you have something to say, Leroy? I thought you read. I just didn't want to miss it. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So we are made righteous by faith. But to, uh, where am I here? Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So Abraham was the father of the Jewish, Jewish faith. Even Paul says, Abraham, our father. Um, he wasn't justified by the law or his works, but by faith. Because it's not about boasting. So we're never justified by our own deeds or actions, only by faith in God. And this is the part of this that I love. It's because they wanted to preach um, that they were justified by the law, by circumcision. And this is what he says. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So this is the point. The promise to Abraham was made before the seal of the promise was given. So that should give us, give us a lot of hope, right? Um, so in Genesis 15, 15 verse 6, it says, Abram, he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And it's not the sign of that covenant doesn't come in until Genesis 17. So verse 17, 10, the, the circumcision becomes the sign of that covenant. It's like saying that you um, have to be baptized to be saved. We don't, we don't teach that, that you have to be water baptized to be saved. So that's what like circumcision and, and water baptism in the New Testament is, is like. 
uh, circumcision was in the Old Testament. It's a sign. It, it's, a, it's a symbol and an outward public declaration of what's happened already on the inside. And so that's what happened is that promise, the promise of God was given to Abram. His name wasn't Abraham yet. God hadn't changed his name yet. And the promise was still given. And the promise was that he'd be the father of many nations, right? If you recall that passage of scripture and his wife is barren and they're a hundred years old and he's like, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And he's like, sup God. Cool. I love that. <laughs> he's, he totally just accepted that promise. So uh, he, that, that, uh, that promise was made before the sign of the covenant was given. The sign of the covenant circumcision was given as a seal of his righteousness, not as his righteousness. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, it didn't make him righteous. His faith is what made him right, that it was accounted to him as righteousness. So this is what I love is Paul says that Abraham then became, that the reason God did that was so that Abraham could be the father of all who believe, not just the Jews. So that means us. That's good. <laughs> um, so that, um, that circumcision just became an outward symbol and seal of an inward covenant. And so um, Abraham then is set forth as an example of faith, the kind of faith that we are justified by. So when we have faith, we're given grace and we're justified. So um, I love this because it says he was justified by faith. The promise was granted through faith. So um, it's important to know that justified by faith, God chose for faith to be the attitude through which we are justified. He chose faith to be the position of our hearts toward him. It's not, we're not justified by our joy. We're not justified by our kindness, by our mercy, or any other human emotion that can be worked up on our own. We're not justified by our compassion. or um, we, can, we can really work ourselves up to any of those things. If you dwell on it long enough, you can, you can make yourself be merciful. You can make yourself be compassionate. But God shows faith as the attitude because it's the only thing that actually relinquishes control. It's the opposite of trusting ourselves. And so faith is the attitude by which we obtain salvation. So that it is according to grace, which is the free gift of God, and not by any of our own doing. So when we have faith, it opens us up. Faith begets grace, and that's the free gift of God. So it can't be by anything we've done ourselves. We, can, we cannot earn salvation. And so then the promise to Abraham was granted through faith. So this is um, chapter, um, chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is, um, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law, remember the law exposes sin, the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law exposes that sin. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. So God, when he gave that promise, intended for it not to be uh, contingent upon fulfillment of the law because he knew that we were sinful. And he knew Abraham couldn't fulfill all the, the, the law, but he wanted the promise to be sure to, for us, to all the seed. So he chose faith to be that attitude because faith is something we are actually capable of, right? By faith... 
that I, I love that. I think that's so cool that, that God was thinking of you when he made that promise to Abraham and deliberately chose to have faith be the attitude by which we would access his presence, by which we would obtain salvation. So cool. So uh, where am I now? I got excited. I was like, yay. Um, so, the, so that the, oh, so verse 16, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who, be, who he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Amen. So it's not by grace, uh, it's not by merit, it's by grace. Not the, by the law, but by grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And remember, people want to preach grace without any kind of... So it, grace does inspire us to, to, uh, to walk holy. Remember last week we said there is, we do have a duty to be holy, but, but grace is uh, the free gift of God. So no matter what we do, we, we can't earn it, right? So um, this is what the, the Matthew Henry commentary says. I love this so much. For God will have every crown thrown at the feet of grace, free grace, and every song in heaven sung to that tune, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name be the praise. So every one of our crowns will be thrown at the feet of grace because it's, it's not us, it's unto him be the glory. Amen. So that verse 19, uh, I'm sorry, I want to go back. Verse 17, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And this is Abraham. Not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it, that it would be imputed to him, to Abraham, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And so Abraham becomes our example to follow. And this is where I kind of want to uh, bring it back down to a personal level because this, when, you, when you're dealing with doctrine and theology, um, I always ask, okay, but what, what does this mean for me? How does this apply to me? And so I want to go over this picture of Abraham giving us a, a faith, the kind of faith that we are justified by. So this is faith. Um, <clears throat> Abraham, the promise to him in the natural was not fulfilled for like 10 years. 10 years. And I really like, this story is especially like special to me because I've, I can relate to Sarah. So with the, the barrenness and, you know, having the promise and then not seeing the, the promise fulfilled. And so this is encouraging to me on a personal level. And I want you to think about how this encourages you. We're going to share. So the promise was impossible, seemingly impossible. But instead of Abraham growing weary or distracted by his earthly circumstances, he continued giving glory to God so that actually his faith became enlarged. 
So rather than focusing on his circumstance, he gave glory to God and it enlarged his faith. His faith didn't grow weak. Contrary to our human earthly hope and hope, he believed. So I wonder, like, how strong would his faith have been if, like, he waited 20 years? <laughs> like, what kind of giant would he have been then? So those are the <laughs> kinds of things I think of. But So this, this passage gives us an example of faith to follow. And I want to just point this out, that a lot of times we take that. He didn't consider his own body. And we take that, and it's faith to not actually say what's really going on. And so that's pretending. Faith is believing. So this thing, it says that God gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. It doesn't say he, call those, he calls those things that do exist as though they didn't. So when you are, like I had, uh, for my own story, I had people tell me it was a lack of faith when I went to the fertility specialist because I wasn't conceived, like for three years I wasn't conceiving and they said, oh, well, that's just not like a lack of faith. And I know Angel, Angel came over to my house one time and sat with me and was like, that is not a lack of faith. Go to the doctor. <laughs> and so it wasn't, it wasn't calling those, say, like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm fertile. and I'm co-. No, it, you can be honest about your situation. So it's a, it's a balanced perspective that we need here. We don't ignore circumstances or ignore the problem. We just don't give the circumstance or the problem power. So he didn't deny that Sarah was barren. He didn't deny it. He just believed God's ability to change the circumstance. So that's why that scripture is, it's so important to note that he didn't flip it around. He didn't say, I'm going to call, oh, you are healed, you are healed. No, it's, I'm I'm sick, but God, I know that you are the healer. You know, uh, you don't deny financial need. You acknowledge his ability to meet our needs. So I don't know why I felt the need to, to say that. So anyway, this passage of faith, this is why I'm, I told you last week I'm like a little faith, I'm like a little follow, fill in the blank kind of a person. So um, I added some of this little fill in the blank paper. This is how I learned. So anyway, that, I put that passage up there. And so when we are faced with impossible circumstances, but we know that we have a promise from God, what, what's, what is our attitude supposed to be? What are we supposed to do? And I know I, I am literally walking through this right now because I know, what my, I know the promises that God has given me, but they haven't come to fruition yet. So what should my attitude be? And the first one is do not consider your earthly circumstances or your natural circumstances, whatever you want. Just like Abraham did not consider his own body we don't consider our natural circumstances. We don't give them power. And I just put a couple of scriptural references that you can look up later with that that I thought went with it. Don't have anything to do with Romans. They're just with that particular concept. So Abraham, he didn't, he didn't dwell on Sarah's barrenness. He acknowledged it, but he acknowledged God's ability to heal and to perform that which he had promised. God doesn't make promises he can't keep. So we acknowledge him as God, like we talked about last week. So we acknowledge he is able to perform what he has promised. We can rest in that. And next, uh, number two, do not waver in unbelief. Do not waver in unbelief. James 1, 6, and 8 talks about when, when we deal with unbelief that we become unstable in all our ways. And I'm not saying that I, I'm sure uh, Abraham had to conquer his thought life. Right? So 
he didn't entertain thoughts in his mind that were contrary to the promise of God. And a lot of times, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when we let thoughts and, and uh, things into our heart, they begin to come out of our mouth, and it's by the word of our testimony that we can speak a lot of things into existence. So we have to be really careful to conquer that thought life. We don't entertain thoughts in our mind. that When God has given us a promise, and when we know that we know that we know we're not... Uh, that God will perform what he's promised. We can't let double-mindedness set in, but we, get, we have to securely set our eyes on the promise of God. So Abraham did not allow a thought pattern of unbelief to take root. So this is our picture, right? So we don't consider our earthly circumstances, our natural circumstances. We don't give them power, and we don't waver in unbelief. And so number three is we give glory to God. So Abraham was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. So he was strengthened in faith because he gave glory to God. So when we glorify God in all things, our faith is enlarged. So he gave glory to God in the midst of completely impossible circumstances, and it strengthened his faith. Uh, Proverbs thirteen twelve says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. I wonder how much Abraham felt that. <laughs> sometimes. But his faith didn't grow weaker, it grew stronger. And so I wonder, like, I mean, I can tell, I can just, like, really relate to Sarah. But <laughs> um, the last one, number four, be fully convinced. Be fully convinced that he who has promised is able to perform what he's promised. So Abraham had a revelation and a deep understanding that if God had promised it, he was able to perform it. He was fully persuaded. And when someone is convinced of something, you can't convince them otherwise. So he was convinced, he was persuaded of the faithfulness of God, and he kept his eyes squarely focused on God's ability to perform what he had promised. And so this is where I want to I close tonight, really more like open for you, um, is in, in what areas of your life have you seen this pattern begin to develop or maybe you walked through it? Because this is, this is our picture. And so if you know, if, you, if you've waited on God and you feel like you're, it enlarged your faith, I'd love to, you feel free to, to share or, yeah. Or how do, yeah, how do you not consider a circumstance that you're actually living through?